Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Luke chapter 18. Please turn to Luke chapter 18. And my hope is to... I actually undershot the passage in the bulletin this week. I'll be going through 19, chapter 10. I mean 19, verse 10, I believe. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 18, beginning at verse 35. And Jesus was approaching Jericho, as Jesus was approaching Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was, and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So where are we in the life of of Jesus Christ? Uh, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, you remember. He's been working his way toward his last stay in his last city. It's the final week before his death. As um, one commentator summarized it, at this point, behind him the ministry of the gospel by word and deed, and before him the final acts of his life toward which all had been pointing. And so the fullness of time is, is quickly approaching, the fullness of time when Jesus would be on a cross. Now, two very different men we have in, in this passage, two uh, incredibly different men, 
a blind and impoverished beggar and a rich, short tax collector named Zacchaeus. And and we see we just so we see these two very different men interacting with with Jesus, the Son of God. There's some question about whether this is uh, Bartimaeus. In fact, if you're reading in NASB, it has Bartimaeus as the uh, the heading. Those aren't inspired. The headings are of of your Bibles are not inspired. But it says Bartimaeus receives sight. Um, but there's some question about whether or not this is Bartimaeus. Uh, no name is used in our text in the inspired uh, word here. And uh, if you were to look at the text in, in Matthew and Mark, you would find that that Bartimaeus meets Jesus as he's leaving Jericho. This is a blind beggar that he meets, the text says, as he's approaching Jericho. And so I, I take this as a different blind beggar, though there are similar parallels between the two. Okay, so although there are similarities between this record and the ones in the other Gospels, I take that this is a separate incident, a different man uh, than Bartimaeus. Now consider the first blind and impoverished man. He's, he's completely at the mercy of those around him, right? His eyes don't work, and so his ears work that much better. And so he starts hearing what's going on in the city. It's not the normal commotion. There's a lot of commotion going on. And um, there's a crowd going by, and he asks about it, and he gets an answer. He gets an answer, and what do they say? They say that Jesus, the Nazarene, was passing by. Now, notice that, that there, there are a lot of names for Jesus in the verses that I read, aren't there? There's this, this one, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the first of, of four, really. And then he's called the son of David by the blind man. And then he's called Lord in verse 41 by that blind man. And then finally, at the end of the passage I read, he's called the son of man. So we have... We have it, that's that stood out to me that we have four different appellations, four different names for Jesus, and um, all those names, as are any names in Scripture, they're they're important. So why did the people near Jericho refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth? Now you notice that the Apostle Peter, when he preached to Jerusalem to the Sadducees in the Acts chapter 4 that we just read, refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth also. And I think that's a very pointed use of Jesus of Nazareth before the Sadducees and the high council, the Sanhedrin, right? He wants to say he ain't from this town, your town, you powerful men. It's Jesus of Nazareth. So here here he's with Jericho, um, you know, and... and, uh, this is the most diminutive of the names that are used of Jesus in the passage. It's equivalent, in a sense, to using our name along with our birthplace. Right? This is like Andrew Dion from Flint, Michigan. Believe it or not. Now, now this is, you know, and, and this is not the name that the... the um, Blind man uses for Jesus. 
right? So, so to me, it's pointed. It's an intentional con- uh, contrast. Jumping forward to verse 7 of chapter 19, we see that the crowds in Jericho were not happy with this Jesus of Nazareth because he was clearly unrighteous in eating with a sinner, right, like Zacchaeus. And then, and then they here they, they sternly warn him to be quiet. So, so I think they're intentionally being, you know, diminishing the name of Jesus here. It's, it is used to deny his significance in the questions that are circulating at this time about whether this man is the Messiah, right? And they just call him Jesus from his hometown. But this man, what does he call Jesus? What does he call Jesus? As, as soon as those around him tell him that it is Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't call out, Jesus, you know, son of Joseph, Jesus from Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They tell him Jesus of Nazareth. He immediately makes a translation in his head and calls him son of David. Why? I mean, it's, it's quite clear that the designation son of David has become a way of saying Messiah. If you look at Luke twenty forty one, Jesus himself makes that connection by asking and answering this question. How is it that they say that the... That the Christ, and Christ is the Greek for Messiah, right? It's just a, a straight-in Greek translation of Messiah. But G- Jesus says, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? And the understanding from scriptures was that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a son or a descendant of King David. Okay, speaking through Nathan the prophet, David receives this word from God. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So a son of David would be on the throne forever. Psalm 89, 3 through 4, it makes the same connection. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And this prophecy, this prophecy in Michael, I mean in Micah. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And of course, you know that Bethlehem is whose city? It's the city of David. And so to make a long story short, this blind man is using, he's not using a a term that diminishes Jesus. He's using a name for Jesus that, that blows the lid off, right? That magnifies Jesus. And, and so in calling Jesus, and this is the important point, in calling Jesus the son of David, he's confessing his faith, right? That this is indeed the one spoken of through all the ages, long ago by the prophets. This is the promised Christ who would come to save his people from their sins. He has faith, 
And it is that faith given to him as a gift that both heals him and saves him. And so this, this is a confession of faith. And then we see, see Jesus be merciful to him by, by um, blessing his, his body and giving him sight, blessing his eyes. But it is significant when Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And he's talking about something that has gone on in his soul. Now, one more aspect of the story that bears drawing your attention to, right? When the blind man begins crying out, Son of David, have mercy. It appears that some of those who are with Jesus, the text says, those who led the way. So perhaps this is even the apostles. Perhaps it's, it's, um, perhaps it's those uh, close to Jesus. They're running interference for Jesus. Right there, they were telling this man to be quiet with stern warnings. They, in the end, were trying to hinder the work of the Lord. Right, and they determined that this poor beggar, this this poor filthy beggar, crying out for mercy, was not Jesus' mission, but it was a hindrance to what he needed to get done at that moment. And so the beggar was was feeling the weight of his sins, and some were telling him, you know, lighten up, man. Jesus doesn't have time for this. You know, he just is not going to give you the attention that you want right now. You're, you're over, you're being overly dramatic. So the beggar was feeling the weight of his sins. Some were telling him to lighten up, and think if he had. Think if this beggar had lightened up. He would have gone away self-righteous rather than healed. He would have gone away with his own righteousness and not the healing that Jesus brought to him. And almost every, you know, in almost every pastoral care situation in the church, in every, in every counseling situation that counselors get in, not only do pastors and elders have to deal with the sins of the people, but they have to deal with those other voices that people they're dealing with are hearing. Right? They have to hear other voices in the ear of the one way down with sin that, that, they're, that, that they, you know, they should lighten up, that their sin is no sin, that this is... You know, you should, you should, you know, go back um, to the back of the line. Jesus has nothing for you. This happens all the time. This happens all the time in any sort of situation, in business situations. You're trying to lead someone, and there are other voices that are pushing in the opposite. This, is, this happens in every interaction that we have. Elders are ministering to someone, and... They are beginning to see humility and repentance, and then along comes a hindering voice of a spouse or the hindering voice of a friend. Or, or usually it's some kinder, gentler pastor or a book. Right, And the end result when that person rejects the ministry of God's servants in the church is self-righteousness rather than healing and repentance. That is often the result. Okay, We can run interference in the work of Jesus, and the end result is the rejection of the truth that it is a kindness of God that leads us to repentance. 
It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The apostles, whoever it is here, think that this cry of conviction, Son of David, have mercy on me, is a bit dramatic and not worthy of the attention of Jesus. What a shame. What a shame that they feel that way. What a shame that they, they decide that they have the words of truth for this man and keep him from Jesus and what Jesus would say to him. Right? Don't be a hindrance. Don't be a hindrance to other people's conviction. Don't be that hindrance. Yet, praise God, their hindrance didn't stifle his cries. That's the wonderful thing here, is he's like, Bleh, have mercy on me. I am wicked. Save me. This blind beggar was going to see. He was going to see Jesus. And and now everything stops. And look how the tables turn. Jesus now commands the ones who have been commanding the beggar to shut up. Right? Jesus now commands and says, no, bring him to me. And Jesus asks a very simple question of this man. What do you want from me? I mean, it's ridiculously simple, isn't it? What do you want from me? It doesn't seem spiritual enough. It doesn't seem, you know, it, it just seems so nonchalant. What do you want me to do for you? What, what do you want me to do? And using another name for Jesus, he says, Lord. Right, Lord. That's a significant name for Jesus. Curios, Lord, Master. I want to gain, regain my sight. And so we get all spiritual and huffy and righteous and think to ourselves, that's the wrong thing to ask for? I mean, what an unspiritual request. He should have asked for his sins to be forgiven. How short-sighted. But don't, don't forget, he's already confessed his faith in Jesus Christ. He said, Son of David. He said, Lord. Right? And so... so the, He's been shouting that among the people, too. He's been shouting it in the face of people who want him to be quiet. So he's been confessing his faith against the odds. And so, and now after this confession of faith, Jesus gives him further favor by healing his eyes, a desire of this man's heart. So not only is he looking to the Messiah for the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus gives him the icing on the cake, the healing of his eyes. And get this, the blindness of the crowd is rebuked by this miracle of Jesus giving sight to the blind man. To think they wanted to hinder this work. And so the mercy of Jesus to the whole crowd is on display when he heals this man's eyes, something everybody around them would be able to see. And what's the end result? They gave praise to God. Had the crowd been given no reason for Jesus to work, the man... The man would be blind, dead, and they would be grumbling and complaining on. And so it's the mercy of the Lord that he heals his eyes so that they would all be amazed and be praising God. Jesus spreading his mercy everywhere. 
Now a different man, the rich man. Zacchaeus. While the beggar would be despised for his weakness and neediness, right? The rich man, as with all tax tax collectors who were, you know, they were extortioners. These guys made things up so that they could steal from people. They were the the most hated of the society. Um, so, So the beggar would be despised for his weakness. The rich man and Zacchaeus and this tax collector would be despised for his strength and power. There couldn't be a greater contrast between these two men as far as position in life and as far as wealth, right? But in the end, these two men need the same thing. They need the forgiveness of their sins. But this man is is hindered in getting to Jesus, too. Uh. The commentator helpfully describes it and makes a spiritual analogy this way. Listen to this. Certain it is that as so often in such circumstances, Zacchaeus encountered only hindrances which seemed to render his purpose almost impossible. The narrative is singularly detailed and pictorial. Zacchaeus trying to push his way through the press and repulsed. Zacchaeus, little of stature and unable to look over the shoulders of others, It reads almost like a symbolical story of one who is seeking to see Jesus but cannot push his way because of the crowd, whether of the self-righteousness or of his own conscious sins that seem to stand between him and the Savior and which which will not make room for him while he is unable to look over them because he is, so to speak, little of stature spiritually. Now, in the end, In the end, it is Jesus who comes to Zacchaeus and commands him. Right, And here's the command. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Again, it's so earthy. It's so unspiritual, right? And yet it's not unspiritual. This is a tax collector. I'm going to stay in your house. Right? It's a strange request. Um... I'm staying at your place, and yet the work of the Holy Spirit is evident in Zacchaeus, right? He, he, he follows Jesus' commands. He jumps down. He receives him, and it even says he receives him gladly. He's like, yes, come on over. And, and th- it's at that point where he's, he's beginning to profess his faith. It's right at that point again where the, the crowds begin to grumble, that Jesus would go to be a guest at the house of a sinner. Now, we've dealt with that attitude before in the book of Luke. I'm not All the way back in Luke 5, the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling about Jesus' practice. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This was Jesus. This, was his, his, this is what he did. And what was his answer? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there's also this. What is the backdrop of this story? If you're thinking back to Luke 18, don't forget that Jesus has recently dealt with another rich man. Remember what is, you know, remember um, chapter 18, beginning at 18 through 27, the parable of the rich young ruler. It was his love for his riches. And that kept him from the kingdom of God. 
and, and which received this rebuke from Jesus. How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then the apostles respond and they say, well, then who can be saved? And then we get the story of Zacchaeus, who's a rich tax collector. And he's being saved. Right? Here's Jesus dealing with another rich man. And, and yet look at Zacchaeus' response to the mere request of Jesus to stay at his home. The accusations are swirling around this, this sinner, this extortioner, this, this rich man. And perhaps by the means of these accusations and the presence of Jesus with him, but, but most certainly by the influence of the Holy Spirit, Zacchaeus begins to lose his grip on what? His riches. He's seeing his sin. He begins to see his sin. He begins to determine that his wealth is not going to be a hindrance to him in keeping him out of the kingdom of God. His response is markedly different than the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So the end result of him fulfilling what he's just said is the removal of all of his wealth. It would be gone. They were notorious, these tax collectors, for defrauding people. And he was going to give back four times what he took. So Zacchaeus, a rich man, is willing to do what the rich young ruler was unwilling to do. The rich young ruler of chapter 18 did not have faith and so did not think the gift of Jesus was precious or was a pearl of great price, right? Zacchaeus, on the other hand, had the gift of faith that loses its hold on the things that previously were very precious. The things of this life, whatever they might be. And here's how Calvin describes what has happened to Zacchaeus. Thus, Zacchaeus is not only ready to give satisfaction, if he has taken anything by fraud, but shares his lawful possessions with the poor, by which he shows that he has changed Listen to this, from a wolf, not only into a sheep, but even into a shepherd. Not just a conversion, right? But now he's going to be ministering to people by his wealth, giving back, showing what must be done in the face of his previous covetousness. In other words, the conversion of Zacchaeus from wolf to sheep is evidenced by the real-life fruit, the visible obedience, the tangible change of his life. Conversion leads to change. Conversion leads to holiness. Conversion leads to new affections, new desires, new pursuits, new obedience, new thoughts, new joys, new everything, all of which increase and are purified over the life of those who have been born again into his kingdom. Zacchaeus Zacchaeus comes out of the gates full tilt. Right? He's not just, you know, losing the OMGs. He's giving up all of his wealth. He's giving up all of his wealth, which his entire vocation and identity in Israel had been focused upon. Radical change. And Jesus Jesus tells him how radical his coming out of the gate is. He says, today salvation has come to this house. 
because he too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Two more names here, right? Zacchaeus call, uh, Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, and, and he means that in the Galatians 3, 9 and 29 cents. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant, heirs according to the promise, right? That's how Jesus is using it here. He believes in the Christ. He is therefore a true son of Abraham, not just according to the flesh. Zacchaeus is likely a Jew, and, and so he's a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh. But what makes him a true descendant of Abraham is his faith. Romans chapter 4. Finally, Jesus refers to, to himself as the Son of Man. Jesus spoke of himself with that designation. That, I mean, that was his preferred term of speaking of himself. And there's a sense in which it can simply mean he's human, a descendant of man. But, and, and this, is, this is, I think it's real significance, and it also can be a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which speaks of the Son of Man and in an extraordinary way. Daniel seven thirteen. I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Right? This is a prophecy of Jesus standing before the Ancient of Days. Anyone who, who didn't have ears to hear would think there was no significance to Jesus saying, Son of Man. It would have just been, would have passed by their ears. But those with ears to hear would have been thinking, Daniel, that prophecy made long ago, right? It's, it is it is pointing to Jesus' eternal role. I mean, eternal role in the salvation of mankind. It's Daniel 7.13 that Jesus quotes when speaking of himself. Just a few chapters forward. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so this exalted heavenly glorious one today is in the house of Zacchaeus. And he's just announced it to Zacchaeus, who, is, who just has ears to hear. That ancient, that ancient prophecy fulfilled. And, and he's there announcing what to Zacchaeus and to his household. Salvation has come to this house. It's amazing. Now, one, one last point about the fact that these two... These two Men that are healed by Jesus sit right next to each other. They just beg for the contrast to be made. Right? But, but, but what's at the center of these is that there's no contrast between these two men at all. Right? The rich and the poor have a common bond. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Right? The Lord has made them. They haven't made themselves. There, there's no difference according to their birth. They, came, they, were, they were knit together in their mother's womb by the Lord. And then Ecclesiastes 9 says this, It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and the, for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. 
As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives, and afterwards they go to the dead. This is the testimony of Scripture. There are superficial differences between all of us here. But there are similarities that are unavoidably true and inevitable. That is one, the Lord made you, and the Lord has numbered your days, and you will one day rest in the ground if the Lord doesn't return first. Right? The rich, the poor, the clean, the unclean, the nice, and the mean, all one day die. The blind beggar died. And the rich Zacchaeus died, and it is also true that every man dies having made some sort of assessment about whether there is a God in heaven and whether Jesus is his son, sent to save his people from their sins. And for those called to heaven, for those called to eternal life, for those whose names are written in the book of life, the Son of God will say to them as he did to the blind beggar, your faith has made you well. And they will hear what he said to the rich and repentant Zacchaeus. Today salvation has come to your house because he too is a son of Abraham. This is what Jesus does. He has come to seek and to save, to go after, to seek and to save those which are lost. And those of you who know that truth and the peace and the preciousness of it, I say, persevere. Those who don't know that peace, Jesus has visited you through the ministry of the word today. So cry out to him like the blind beggar did. Cry out for mercy to him. Look to Jesus just as Zacchaeus did. And you'll find rest for your soul. Jesus is merciful. Let us pray. Lord, we praise you for your great mercy toward blind, sinful beggars. And Lord, we thank you that you, in real time, sent your Son, Father, to live among a people, and that his miracles testify to his greatness, like the healing of this blind man, and the miracle of the repentance of a tax collector, Father, which is as radical as eyes beginning to see that couldn't see. And so, Father, we thank you for this this ministry of Jesus, his commands of those following him to bring the blind beggar forward and the command for, for Jesus to come into the house and stay in the house of Zacchaeus. Lord, I pray that Jesus would open blind eyes and present himself in all the homes that are represented here.
Lord, we praise you for him. We praise you for the Spirit, and we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.